tried to run away from me. So I hit him with my shoe again! How far are you gone? L.A. Not many people stop for a guy these days. Afraid of a stick-up, maybe. This buggy belongs to a guy named Haskell. That's not you, mister. Now, wait a Shut minute. Up. You're a cheap crook and you killed him. Never mind that stuff. Take a car. Ah? Uh, my duty car. You can keep it. I've got 51 left. <laughs> The Cult-Worthy Classic, a cinema podcast dedicated to obscure films and cult cinema made before 1970. Your host Antonio Palacios and a weekly guest will deep dive into these films to prove if they are in fact cult-worthy. And so without further ado, let's start the show. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Antonio and this is the Cult Worthy Classic, episode number 26. Today's episode is a very special one. I've got my friend Caesar, aka 7Cs of the No on 15 Allcast, joining me to talk about 1968's Planet of the Apes. Now, he was on the show a couple months ago where we talked about the Omega Man, so obviously we have an obsession with Charlton Heston, which I assure you is perfectly healthy. We also talk about the film's legacy, its sequels, which we love, even though they are highly debated among the cult film community, and also its legacy, its animated series, its TV show spinoffs, and its unfortunate remake in 2001. Now, we actually talk about how we enjoyed the reboot from the 2010s starring Andy Serkis, but nothing can hold a candle to the original five films. Now, before we get into that conversation, I've just got a quick announcement we are doing somewhat of a format change for the cult-worthy classic. Now, I've always prided myself in the 25 episodes of the show for being a dedicated weekly show to have guests on to talk about these cult-worthy classic films. However, the cult-worthy podcast, my main show, has really taken a huge leap into having weekly guests and weekly discussions of all these films that I consider cult-worthy. It's becoming very difficult to have two guested podcasts each week, different time zones, different schedules. And since the Cult Worthy Podcast is the main show, I need to focus all of my scheduling energy to that. So starting after this episode, the Cult Worthy Classic will go to every other week having a guest. And in the weeks between that, we'll be doing either a film history profile, a group of classic film reviews, or having my buddy Mikey Jones on to teach us some film history. So I appreciate your understanding in this format change. I think it is for the best. It's going to make both shows better so I don't have to focus on rushing and jumping into all these different guested conversations and just really let the content speak for itself. Now with that out of the way, let's dive into this conversation on 1968's Planet of the Apes with my friend Caesar, aka 7Cs. Enjoy the show. And joining me for the first time on the Cult Worthy Classic, previously heard on the Cult Worthy Podcast, where we dived into the Omega Man series with The Last Men on Earth, Omega Man, and I Am Legend, my friend Caesar, aka Seven Seas. Caesar, how you doing? What's up, man? I am. Uh, I'm doing good. I am uh, super thrilled to be here. And uh, yeah, I can't wait to talk about this film tonight. So, I mean, I think from now fun. on, you and I are just going to talk all things Charlton Heston. Like, we're just going to be doing <laughs> Chuck Heston movies as long as this podcast goes on. So, which isn't a bad I'm down, thing. Man, I'm down. <laughs> no, it, it's not. Definitely not. I mean, like, we really, yeah. we really got off to a strong start doing the Omega Man, and the Omega Man and the film we're talking about today really are neck and neck for me of like my two favorite Charlton Heston films. And it really just depends on what mood I'm in that I decide which mm. one is my favorite. Yeah, man. I really like, um, I, I can't front. I really like the 10 commandments too, man. Uh, I totally like, that's a super epic movie. And I know it's re- like a, you know, a religious movie, but Charlton Heston is, a. Uh, He's just pretty badass in there too. Well, but then you got Ben Hur too, man. You got his ben two yeah. biblical epics like side by side, both kind of like fighting with each other. See, for me, Ben Hur mm-hmm. kind of edges because of the chariot race. Like mm-hmm. you can't mm-hmm. sleep on the chariot race. Yeah, that's true. That that's a strong that's a strong uh that's a strong argument. <laughs> for sure. And, and then um, I would say, like leading up to that, have you ever seen the film The Greatest Show on Earth? No. I haven't. So that is like a, I believe it's Cecil B. DeMille again. It is like a three-hour circus epic where 
Charlton Heston plays like the the major general of this circus. And there's all these like kind of dramas going on between the flying trapeze artists and the elephant tamers. And it really is just like this all encompassing story of life in the circus back in like the 1930s. Great film. I love it. Again, it's long. Like Heston liked making these long epic films and you, you, you have to like have the patience and the desire to sit through it, but it's a really good story. It's got Jimmy Stewart, you know, it's just a really, really good movie. So you should check that out. Yeah, it's like 1952. Is it black and white? No, it's in color. Like, it's in really nice technicolor. So definitely check that one out, man. Throw another Chuck Heston movie at you. (laughs) There's another one. um, Man, what is it? With him and Orson Welles is in there? Oh, Touch of Evil. Yes. Yeah. I love Touch of Evil. It's a great movie uh, directed by Orson Welles and Charlton Heston. Yeah plays a Mexican. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's what always tripped me out, but it's a great movie though. <laughs> but I always remember how dark he looked and like how dark his mustache was. And so, he doesn't yeah, even try an accent. He's just <laughs> he's like, "No. I'm a detective in Mexico and this is how I speak." <laughs> yep. <laughs> we might have to jump into that one at some point too. But I've kind of like beat around the bush a little bit. The film that we're talking about today might be one of the most quintessential Charlton Heston movies of all time, and that is 1968's Planet of the Apes. Planet of the Apes. A civilization where humans run wild in the jungles. The superior beings are apes. My custody for final disposition. Do you realize what that means? No. Emasculation to begin with. Then experimental surgery on the speech centers, on the brain. Then a kind of living death. Now, what was your first introduction to this masterpiece? I have to say it was probably, you know, the sci-fi channel back in like the 80s, maybe used to do like marathons. Oh, yeah. Planet of the Apes. Yeah. Before they were doing like all this crazy, like reality show nonsense. And yeah. Yeah, man. And uh, they they would do those marathons. And my brother, God bless him, man. He's uh, he's like 10 years older than me. So he's always into sci-fi. And uh, he he's the one that put me on. Like, so he started watching it. And I would just sit down and watch it with him. And uh, again, one of those things where I'm like, you know, pretty young, like five or six years old. And uh, just watching all those movies like back to back. And uh, that's one thing like that now as I'm older in retrospect, like look, looking back at that, it's pretty awesome to see how well they were interconnected. You know, those films. Like, yeah. Story- yeah, and we're definitely going to talk about all five films in the series towards the end. Like, of course, we need to focus on this film, but like we were talking about before we started recording, I it's like the Rocky movies, man. I can't just watch one without mm-hmm. wanting to watch the entire series. Exactly. You know, so I just recently watched this one again. It's been about a year since I watched it last. I marathoned it last time. I'm going to marathon it again over this next week just trying to like mm-hmm. fit them in. And we'll talk about our favorite rankings of the five films. Cause it's very rare to have a series that goes five films like this. I mean, these days with your star Wars and your fast and the furious, it's almost kind of gimmicky how many sequels mm-hmm. they can throw at you. But I was always really impressed about how between like 1968 and I think it was like 1973, they were able to fit these five films and tell a complete story. I, I think that's pretty fascinating. And definitely like, like we're talking about Planet of the Apes, you know, tonight, and and I know we'll get into the sequels and stuff, but like I I, I think I mentioned it on Twitter too. I was like, that's for me. It's it's not just a Charlton Heston movie, but science fiction. Like to me, that stands like the test of time. It's like in my top five all times, like science fiction movies, because it's just what happens in it is crazy. Um, if you've never seen it before and and you realize, you know, spoilers, everybody, this movie's been out since 1968. But <laughs> <laughs> if you once you realize what happens in the end, you're just like, wow. I mean, here's you know, the thing. It, it, I, we, we're going to have to, like, just say this right out of the gate. 
this movie had five sequels. It had an animated series. It had a live action series. It's had two remakes. One of those remakes had its share of sequels. Most of the physical media of this film has the ending spoiled on the goddamn cover art. So <laughs> I think people know how this film ends, so I'm not worried about spoiling. It. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, that's so true. Um, even now, like you, like everything you just said rung with me because I'm the same way. I'm already like, I think I finished Sunday night. I was watching Planet of the Apes and then right away I started watching Beneath the Planet of the Apes. So I'm like right already like, gonna end up watching all of them i know yeah you just it it just happens and my introduction to this film was pretty similar except it was my dad you know i was only child and like we talked about no mega man like he just had a vhs collection that did not stop and they were all bootlegs he'd bootleg it off of hbo or Mm -hmm. from the video store we had you know a double deck vcr so i always grew up with these films and this one was always in my favorites i would actually just watch on my own not even because of like the ape makeup, which I think is probably what was really attractive to the younger generation when this film came out, because it's very fantastical, it's very sci-fi. But what really does it for me in this film is the whole idea of Rod Serling, creator of The Twilight Zone, taking a science fiction story like this and really implementing political ideas that have been with us for as long as we've been a country, where you've got the warmongers who are the gorillas, you've got like the scientific and religious community who are a little bit better than everyone else. That's the orangutans. And then the Mm -hmm. chimpanzees are just like everyday people who strive to do more and question authority more. It just is so reflective of society back then mm-hmm. and even today maybe even more so today maybe this is another film kind of like we talked about with omega man that needs to be re-examined under today's microscope yeah um that's one of my notes is like it's just everything you said about the politics side of it is very uh pertinent and also i think theologically it's, it's a very yeah. theological movie because you get into um the disciplines that you know, some of the apes have and what they believe in and also like how they come to speak of man and mankind. So it's very it's very deep in a sense, man, uh, when you watch it and you you see, um, you know, the interactions between, you know, humans and apes and stuff and also between the apes themselves and how uh, their beliefs tend to kind of rule uh, their actions. You know, it's just pretty, pretty deep and, and awesome at the same time because it's science fiction, you know. So and, and it's one of those rare occasions where all of its sequels complement its lore, where yeah, with with each additional sequel, you actually take a little closer look at how all of these stories kind of intertwine and intermingle. And it, when we get to talking about the sequels, there's a really interesting connection that I forgot about because this was based on a novel from the early mm-hmm. '60s. It was a French novel uh, called *Planet of the Apes* by Pierre Boulle and in the UK and in the United States, I think it was released as monkey planet. Right. (laughs) And I I read this book after I saw the movie and the book really kind of blew my mind because it really kind of turns the tables on how Rod Serling tells a story because you can't deny that the way Rod Serling writes this film, it really feels like a twilight zone film. And we kind of talked about Mm. that with Omega man, even though Rod Serling didn't do Omega man. We talked about how there was like a definite Twilight Zone feel to it. This film, even more so, especially with the fact that it starts off with three astronauts. Well, technically four. One of them perishes at the beginning. Mm-hmm. But we've seen many Twilight Zone episodes begin that way, where astronauts land on a planet that they believe is an alien world, and they end up being somewhere familiar. Like, it's a very common story <laughs> yeah. for Rod Serling. Yeah, definitely. Um, it has that twist, even though it takes a little longer to get there, but definitely um, you get that vibe and feel. Uh, it could totally be like a long, you know, Twilight Zone episode. Like what would happen if, you know, we went into space and we went into the future and we landed on a distant planet, but later on it might not be what it seems, you know, kind of yeah. like narrating it. <laughs> it would be like something just like that. You almost sounded like Rod Serling there. It's like we landed on a different planet. <laughs> doesn't feel like it seems 
Sterling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love Rod Sterling, man. And um, to know, like, yeah, you you said you mentioned Monkey Planet, and I think I was I was digging up you know a little info on you know Linda Harrison. I think we played Nova yeah. in the film, and how you know she was like this big time you know kind of pageantry woman mm-hmm. back in the day, like she was Miss America and stuff, and how she was. Um, reading the script for the movie and that was a script at the time that's what it was it was called monkey planet so yeah they they later on changed that so the, i guess they were going to go with that name but then they changed it so yeah it's interesting interesting i like that. planet of the apes better it works it works a little bit better and technically yeah, yeah. they are apes they are not monkeys that was just a, uh, I guess a yeah. mistranslation <laughs> from the original publisher <laughs> from french into to english definitely sounds cheesier for sure so how this film starts off is they are astronauts, four of them, in outer space. You're assuming, you know, millions of light years away from Earth on a deep, deep space mission. They never really explain what the mission is. It's obviously just some kind of like exploration, almost like a Star mm-hmm. Trek sort of deal. They know that they are not coming home to the home that they know. They know that they are probably several hundred years away from the time that they left. And they are just ready to go back. He's doing like his captain's log. They go into their deep sleep. And according to the computer and to them, they're on their way back home. Only to interrupt the title sequence into like this really cool montage of the spaceship spinning out of control and crashing into like this barren desert in a large body of water, which is actually Lake Powell which is in Utah where I live. It's like three hours away. What? It's fun to That's kind of, awesome. it's fun to kind of like see what? like, Oh yeah, I've been on a houseboat out there before. <laughs> oh man. I would totally be out there taking pictures. Uh, That's awesome, man. Um, Yeah. Like everything from the jump, the, you know, the vibe you get of the movie with Charlton Heston, you know, kind of narrating at the beginning and, you know, describing what he sees and, um also like the one thing that kind of catches you off guard i feel like is the inside of the ship compared to the outside of the ship yeah so for some reason it didn't match to me when i when i would see it and then you know i know it's kind of a dumb little detail no i feel the exact same way i was actually gonna mention it too like (laughs) yeah yeah the exterior of the ship is very futuristic almost like a stealth fighter it seems yes it seems really relevant to like our day and age or or at least when that was supposed to have taken place but then when you're the inside it is a little 1960s hokey sci-fi but here's the thing the film is so good comfy it's comfy though yeah The, f- the film is so good and the performances are so real that you buy it. You you, you give it a yeah. pass and you buy it. Yeah, that's true. That's true. That's the only like, it, like at the beginning, really, that's the only moment that will feel dated to you, really, to me, like is the interior of that ship. And then afterwards, everything is just kind of just kind of moves. Uh, it's in a groove. Like, you know, and they even... did their best. I mean, it's 1968. Yeah. <laughs> it's a year before 2001. So when you think about it, 2001 was like the first film that really kind of took the technology of space travel a little less hokey sci-fi. It really tried to make mm. it realistic. I mean, when you go back and you watch 2001, it it looks like they're using iPads. They're using a lot of like pretty modern technology by today's right. standards and it kind of tracks. Where this one it's yep. like it's got like the little barbershop coil in the little sensor and all the buttons are just like three colors and always blinking like in Star Trek. So yeah, there's a little bit of suspension of the disbelief there for sure. Yeah, for sure. And then, you know, right after they crash and he's seems like him and Landon don't get along, right? Like when they get on there, like they're kind of arguing a bit. Well, I feel like, so you've got you've got technically four guys there, which is an interesting dynamic because it almost seems like they are out on some kind of exploratory mission to find a new inhabitable planet. That's why they have a female with them. And he even says later on, like, she was supposed to be the new Eve, <laughs> which I thought was always yeah. interesting. It's like, okay, so, like, what, they just draw straws or, or what? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I thought the same thing, man. I was like, uh, so how's this going to work? Is this... <laughs> I go first. Rochambeau you for it, man. (laughs) Yeah, so you got got Taylor. (laughs) 
played by Charlton Heston. You've got Landon and Dodge. So you've got these three guys. Yep. And Taylor seems to be like the more realistic and cynical guy. And that's why he's in charge because Landon, who's like the science officer in command, he just has a harder time dealing with the reality that they are not on earth and that they are not 3000 years in the future, which they are. He just has a hard time accepting it, which is weird because he is the science officer. And then you got Mm -hmm. Dodge who, in my opinion, they don't really say it. I think he's kind of like the security officer, you know, that Mm. that's, he's like the Lieutenant Worf. I would say he, He's the one that like handles a pistol and stuff like that. So I think that was his role. I think that Landon's a science officer. Taylor is the the captain, the chief, and then mm. the female character whose name I forget. Well, we all know what she was there for. So <laughs> it's the sixties, everybody. Don't get mad. It's the sixties. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, no, I think yeah. Like if he. If he wasn't the security guy, he was definitely the mechanic. You know what I'm saying? And uh, now I'm talking about Dodge. And, man, he got – I always feel, like, bad for him and feel bad for Landon when you see him later on uh, after, you know, they get to – Ape City. Their, yeah. yeah, they track through the desert, and they find that nice little waterfall, and they're happy. They're getting clean. Yeah, they got water, and then all of a sudden other stuff's getting stolen. Right. Right. And, uh, and and before we jump into that part, there's a very interesting scene that I've always questioned. So when they are going through just like this vast desert, which when Landon te- tests the soil, he discovers that it's toxic. Mm-hmm. Nothing will grow here. But as they get closer to this waterfall, this water source, they are finding like different signs of life. They're finding plants and things like that. And then they come across this cliffside with a series of some kind of makeshift scarecrows. Now, here's the part that I've always wondered. Who made the scarecrows? Because if you look at them closely, they are ape skins draped across. You've got the orange Mm -hmm. orangutan skins, you've got the black gorilla hides, and you've got the kind of lighter brown chimpanzee skins. So Mm -hmm. it makes me wonder, because we see that the human race that exists on this planet are very just primitive. They can't speak. They don't have process for intelligent thought for the most part. I don't think that they're smart enough to put these scarecrows up, but it makes no sense for the apes to put scarecrows up at the edge of the desert where they don't think that there's any kind of threat with Mm. the hides of their own species. So I've always wondered, is there a third species or tribe or hybrid living out in this forbidden desert that we just don't see like is it maybe like a missing story element hey you know what like that's a that's a great uh kickoff point for our planet of the lizards oh god you know because if you think about it reptoids are living beneath us right now who's to say that they're still not (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) um you do see, yeah, you're right. You see like different color fur on the scarecrows, like you know the orangutan and the apes, you know, a gorilla and chimpanzee. So um, I, I think I always thought maybe it was Doctor Zayas who knew that what was out there and what could expose their beliefs. Yeah, maybe had those propped up there. If it wasn't him, then maybe it was the people from beneath the planet of the apes. See, and uh, I thought that too, but then I was like, no, that's like some George Lucas bullshit where he was like starting to like <laughs> retcon his story to make sequels work. I'm like, they did not have beneath the planet of the apes planned when they wrote this movie. That's gotta be something yeah. else. Or maybe it was just something they put in there and like, we'll just explain it later. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It is, it is um, symbolic though, in a way, yeah. you, every time you see it, like especially rewatching the film, it, you just it it sticks out to you, and the way they they're shaped, just like an X, almost. Yeah. Like uh, this is a forbidden zone, so don't enter. Like, yeah. You know. And they're large, and they have claws. They're very primitive, and that's why your first intuition is that the humans made it, but it doesn't track with them, and it doesn't really track with the apes either. So yeah, it's it's something mm-hmm. that's always kind of been like a MacGuffin for me, just unexplainable but it kind of helps move the story forward. Yeah, that's true. So well, yeah, and so like the, the next scene is after they get all their stuff stolen by these primitive humans, it leads to one of the most, I would say, intense action 
pursuit scenes that I had seen in a film that that early on, like in the sixties, like it's a good Mm -hmm. 10 minute sequence of these gorillas hunting and lurking and herding humans like cattle through these fields off of the edges of cliffs into these swamps. Like it is a very intense action scene, really well directed, a lot of great tracking shots, but it has some of the coolest action theme music from the 1960s that is just fantastic. And it's Jerry Goldsmith who went on to do Alien. Yeah. Great, great score by him. And I love how he incorporates like ape sounds and like these squeaky violin chords to almost sound like a primitive monkey sound. Fantastic use of sound and score in that scene. Yeah. Um, Yeah, right off the bat, that's something you will not miss when you're watching the credits. You see Jerry Goldsmith is the one doing the score. And you get like such... He sets up such a great ambiance in the movie with, uh, you know, audio wise um, from the moment like you're in space to transitioning to Earth. And that scene you're speaking of, like the moment that you get like the ape on the horseback, it just freaks you out like it does. Yeah. And um, everything like that's happening. Battle horns in the background just yeah. really kind of intensifying that whole pursuit. And it's we start to get the idea of whatever planet we're on where these apes are the dominant species, the gorillas are the hunters, they are the security force, they are the warmongers, which really comes into play in the sequels. Dummies. Yeah. <laughs> For lack of a better word. Yeah, like they, they, <laughs> they don't really have like the intelligence of the orangutans, the chimpanzees, so they kind of just have that alpha brutality sense where yep. like, well, I can smash things and I can hunt things and I'm going to protect our city from these mindless humans you know so i get where they're going and it's one of those things where like we talk about in today's society they are practically dumb and harmless in fewer numbers but in large numbers and hordes they are definitely a force to be reckoned with yeah that's true um they're definitely less character wise prevalent in the first film as you know the sequels you kind of get more uh different roles that are like in leadership with the gorillas. But in the first one, they're more just doing the tasks, you know, kind of given to them by, you know, the orangutans in uh, this one. Like, ah, they they don't really ever give them a group name either, do they? Uh, They just call them gorillas. Yeah, Yeah, they don't have like a, they don't have like an army or like a militia presence quite yet. That really happens in the second film. But with this, I mean, so Taylor is being pursued with his other two guys. Dodge gets shot and taken down during the hunt. And then Taylor gets shot in the throat. And the next thing we know that he is brought to Ape City. Now, I get it for budgetary reasons. Ape City, you would think once you know the end of this film and like the history of this, this race, you would assume that Ape City would be a lot larger and a lot more populated more like, you know, a modern day city with a modern day population, but it's not, it's, it's almost like a village, almost like an Ewok village in the desert. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) It's like a old school, um, just made out of like stucco and sand and dirt kind of homes and caves, like may have been fashioned into a home, but it works Uh, and and, and it it works. And one of the things aesthetically, definitely. Yeah. One of the things I like about it is that we are introduced to the fact that the orangutans and the chimpanzees do have a heightened level of intelligence. You know, they have metallurgy, they have medical knowledge and surgical knowledge, they know about blood transfusions and blood types. And I think what Rod Sterling was doing with the description of these sets and the way they were supposed to be built is he's taking away that weird kind of competitive edge that humans have like to the apes. Mm. It's more about that natural survival instinct that has now been integrated with this intelligence where humans have the desire to build bigger and better and larger and faster. And I think that the cityscape of the apes is meant to say that the apes are better than that. They didn't take Mm. it that direction the way humans would. That's a human trait. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, more minimalistic, right? So it's just basically, you know, the needs um, instead of kind of flaunting what they could do, which is kind of more of a human trait. 
Right, which goes uh, completely against the original novel because the original novel is almost the the opposite. It the the main character, the Taylor character in the original novel, finds himself in like the modern day Paris, but inhabited by apes. They have museums, they have zoos, they have circuses, they have wow. skyscrapers. So obviously that was going to be a budgetary concern. So the brilliance of Serling being able to turn it to more of like a primitive fashion really works for the budget, but also, like I said, has something to say about humans' desire to expand beyond their means. Oh, was it? It was in Planet of the Apes, right? Where Taylor's in court when he's in trial? Yeah. So, so after and, he's uh, been experimented on and he doesn't have a voice, he finds a way to escape. He runs through the city. He's captured by the gorillas and says that classic line, get your damn paws off me, you damn dirty ape. So yeah. now they know that he speaks, and because he has spoken and has been protected by Zira and by Cornelius, played by Kim Hunter and Roddy McDowell, in a fantastic performance by both of them, yeah, he's brought to like this trial, which is kind of a sham trial, right? Because yeah. he, he, he doesn't have the protection of ape lock because he's, because he's not an ape, but he can be brought down by ape law because he's not an ape <laughs> that's the thing yeah that and i might be wrong about the quote but it's one of the apes says everything you need to know about a human takes place below below the waist yeah they do they do say right? that yeah and so it's basically saying uh all we care about uh <laughs> happens <laughs> on the physical level um that we're we're dumb you know and Basically, in this society, it's true in a way because, you know, humans, like you said, are primitive. Um, and then to go back to the trial, that's one thing that always stuck with me was how under ape law they were trying to try him, but he's not an ape. Uh, you know, it's, what, it's like a publicity stunt. It reminds yeah. me of like a lot of this stuff we're seeing in the Supreme Court that like makes no sense, but it's all for the excitement to get different political groups excited. It's kind of like doing that kind of thing. But there is something very interesting too. Like I, I, maybe I've seen this movie too many times and I'm reading subtext that isn't there. There, there is a weird thing with the orangutans where they are science-based, but they are also faith-based based on right. their lawgiver who apparently would be like their, maybe Jesus Christ or their Moses or their Mohammed. It's a religious figure who we actually get to see in the fifth movie. We actually get to see the lawgiver in Battle for the Planet of the Apes, played by John Huston. And it mm -hmm. kind of goes to speak when you watch that movie all the way through that that is like 2,000 years before the events of Planet of the Apes. So just like how the Bible has been misconstrued and misinterpreted and reinterpreted so many times that we've lost pretty much any recollection of what it really said in its origin i feel like there's something there with the orangutans what i'm getting to is i feel like the orangutans are almost like the vatican like they have a lot of secret knowledge and a lot of secret yes. texts and they have a lot of stuff that they know about and they're buried but if that was to be known by the rest of the apes in the city or in the other communities it would break that level of faith therefore it would break that level of control yeah, I agree. That's completely true. Um, Dr. Zayas is, alludes to it many times, you know, saying I've always known of man, you know, yeah. um, the capacity uh, for, what does it say, for war or something like that? And or, destruction. Destruction. There you go. You know, he's like, the, the forbidden zone was a paradise and your kind made a desert of it. And, you know, he's one of those villains where... I wouldn't say he's a sympathetic villain, but towards the end of the film, you realize he's kind of an empathetic villain because mm -hmm. even though he is doing a lot of terrible things to our hero and we really don't know why, once you know what he knows and we're given like that grand finale, which we'll get to in a, in a little bit, you see that he's justified in what he's doing. You know, it, it, it's almost in a way kind of like how some people get like, oh, I get what Thanos was doing in the Avengers movies. You know, he... He saw disorder because of overpopulation and stuff like that. He thinks he is doing the right thing. So even though he is the villain, he's not operating from 
an origin of evil. He's operating from a sense of like protection of his community and protection of these sacred knowledges and texts. So that's where I give Dr. Zayas a pass towards the end of the movie because he really is, in a sense, doing the right thing. Taylor, even though he's there just by accident, just by circumstance, Taylor could be very destructive to that community. Set down by the greatest ape of all, our lawgiver. Cornelius, come here. Reach into my pocket. Read to him the 29th scroll, sixth verse. Beware the beast man, for he is the devil's pawn. Alone among God's primates, he kills for sport or lust or greed. Yea, he will murder his brother to possess his brother's land. Let him not breed in great numbers, for he will make a desert of his home and yours. Yeah, that's society in general. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he says, uh, I believe his uh, man, I believe his wisdom must walk hand in hand with this idiocy, is what uh, Dr. Zayas said. Um, and it's it's very true. Like, Taylor is like a display of that, in a way. You know, um, his emotions rule his brain. Uh, he says that too. Um, and <laughs> it's funny, like there's so many quotes and you could tell, like you said, a lot of it, the way it was written was probably meant, especially, you know, the religious undertones of the apes and their beliefs of their lawgiver. Like you could tell that stuff was made to mimic like you know, maybe scripture you know, yeah. from the Bible and stuff like that. So. Yeah, it's definitely, it, it would be a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A, what, what is it, like a conscience of your faith or something like breaking your faith uh, if they found out the truth? Yeah, totally, and, and that's how they keep up. control. <laughs> they keep control through faith and through belief. And, you know, that I, a lot of people say that's how cults work. That's why some people kind of organize religions with cults. I think there's a lot more free will in religion, and that's why I give religions more of a pass. But the the differences with this is that we're dealing with these simian intellects that we want to look at them through the eyes of a human. We want to sympathize with them as humans because we like Zira and Cornelia so much. They do have a lot of compassion for the humans that are in the laboratory. They have a lot of compassion for discovering history but at the same time they're like the only two that feel that way all the other chimpanzees with the exception of lucius the little nephew they all are just kind of sheep they're just in the flock they do what the orangutans say and it really is cornelius and zira kind of on their own kind of breaking away from the fold and they 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 say that quite a bit throughout the film as they're being charged for heresy as they're being called heretics because they're questioning the, the ancient texts, you know, they cancel Cornelius's expedition out in the desert because he's an archaeologist because of what he finds. And it's, it's his natural instinct to want to discover more, but they put the kibosh on it because they know what it means to the society. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. Like Taylor would have been dead a long time ago, y'all, if right. it wasn't for Zero and Cornelius yeah. uh, having compassion like they did. Um even though, like, some of that leaks out later on uh, when they find out what experiments they did, you know, later on in the sequels to, to humans, um, mm -hmm. which in retrospect is like, you know, obviously the humans were different at, at their time than our time. Yeah, definitely. Like, I feel like without them, especially the movie itself, they help drive a lot of the film uh, along with Charlton Heston because um, their characters are the ones that kind of, you know, make the story go in a way uh, or else yeah. you wouldn't have a story, you know? Yeah. W without those two, Taylor would be lobotomized right from the beginning, just like <laughs> yes. Landon was, which I've always wanted to know the side story that led up to Landon's being lobotomized. Yeah. Dr. Zayas knew. You did it. <laughs> he knew that he had, to, he knew that he had to be able to talk. Otherwise he wouldn't have lobotomized him. So what did those conversations look like? Where was he? Was he like just in in a in a kennel and then started talking and they just instantly took him away and lobotomized him? Like I've always wanted to know that 
lead up to that reveal, which is a really cool and emotional reveal later on in the film. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just can't get the Heston out of my mind. Like when he's like, you did it to him. You, you know? cut um, into his brain. <laughs> 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 and it looks like a little circular, like almost like a bite. It's like a horseshoe, like, like a the horseshoe stitches. Pattern. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a horseshoe. Yeah, and uh, yeah, he totally shaved off there. And it's like, man, what? I was like, oh, like the first time you see this and that scene pops out, you're like, oh man, he finally found someone he can talk to. Oh shit, no, he can't. <laughs> when they turn around, because uh, they cut his brain out. <laughs> well, and it also like it makes you like flip the it makes you flip the narrative on itself to try and understand where Cornelius and Zira are coming from, because if one day an ape just started talking to us and said that it was from another planet that flew here on a spaceship, yeah, guaranteed the first thing we would do is cut it up. So again, that is Rod Serling kind of like putting the mirror in front of us as humans being like, well, you're empathizing with this situation, but realize we're humans, we'd be doing the exact same thing if that, if that was the case. <laughs> That's totally true. Um, because <laughs> yeah there there's a moment when after heston says that and you see landon there's a moment on cornelius and zero's face they're like oh damn like she kind of like covers her eyes yeah. like oh like there's no way to you know kind of help him prove his case uh, because this was yeah they they go outside and they're like yeah show me show me the other humans that were caught uh, the same day of that hunt yeah so. And one's dead and one's lobotomized. It doesn't help his case at all. <laughs> yeah. So then when it, what it kind of comes down to is there's a really fascinating scene after the trial where Zayas and Charlton Heston have like a conversation together. They have a moment where it is kind of like there's like this simpatico between the two of them. It's like, look, I have no other choice but to either kill you or lobotomize you. Like, this is just how it is. But that's not without me saying that there is some truth to your story. I'm not going to tell it to you, but just understand that you cannot be a part of this society. It's really him just telling him straight, you know, like I, I, I respect Dr. Zayas for that scene. And again, I think that's what makes you feel a little bit more empathetic for him towards the end. You may well call it upside down since you occupy its lowest level and deservedly so. Our eastern desert has never been explored because we've always assumed that life cannot exist there. Taylor, save yourself. Tell me, is there another jungle beyond the Forbidden Zone? I don't know. If you're trying to protect others of your kind, it'll cost you your identity. I'm not protecting anyone. This whole thing is insane. What have I done? So with that knowledge, Zira and Cornelius and Lucius break him and Nova out of the laboratory and head into the desert to go find this cave that Cornelius says has evidence of a primitive species or civilization before apes. One other thing to mention from like leading up to the escape was, and kind of profound was, how when Taylor was getting pulled away, he says, "You remember, you're doing it out of fear. What are you afraid of? Which is, what are you afraid yeah. of? Yeah. Which is something we commonly say that, you know, there's a saying where people are afraid of things that they don't understand, right? Which yeah. is basically what they're doing because uh, they don't understand how this human can speak. Yeah. So, well, I mean, we just lived through two and a half, three years of that with this pandemic where it's like, we just we just do what they tell us, and then they tell us something different, and then we don't know what to do, and then that's where fear comes. Fear comes from this lack of understanding, and that's when people get desperate and just start listening to anybody that sounds remotely intelligent, whether they're right or not. It is just human instinct to do that. Yeah, that's scary. <laughs> it's so scary, man. And like they're they're talking about this in this movie about apes in the 1960s. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And then it comes like the to me like the the real kind of most fascinating scientifically sequence of the film, and that is when Doctor Zayas has tracked him down to these caverns. They've captured Doctor Zayas. The gorillas are sent off. They go into the cave, and Cornelius kind of lays out the expedition of like, okay, 
about a thousand years ago, we find this set of apes who are like mm-hmm. our ancestors. They're they're civilized, but they're a little bit you know crude in their technology. But then as we go further and further, we see the apes kind of digress, and then we see man being more technically proficient. We're seeing artificial heart valves, glasses, and the real kind of giveaway, a talking doll, in which Heston mm-hmm. says, why would an ape make a doll that could talk? Yeah, that's like the big line, kind of poking holes in you know, uh, Dr. Zayas's defense. Uh, why, why would this exist? And he says something to the effect of, you know, we were here before you and we were better than you. Yes. Uh, is something like what he says to him. Uh, and his whole idea is like, okay, well, I've crash landed on a planet where apes evolved from men. So that's how he deconstructs it in his brain. It makes me wonder that if Landon survived, if Landon would have had a little bit more foresight to look into it. Because if you think about it, Landon was kind of convinced that he was back on Earth before he was captured. He did not want to accept the fact that they were on a different planet on a different solar system. Because Heston says, well, you know, that sun is this particular star. And Landon's like, no, that star is white. This one's yellow. I I don't think we are where you think we are. Homeboy was probably right the whole time. And he probably would have figured it out (laughs) if he hadn't gotten his brain cut up. Oh, man, I know. I mean, and these are the the things you see. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. No, these are the reasons why you see things watching these movies over and over again. Like, you just keep deconstructing the story, and it's like, okay, am I making this narrative up, or was this a narrative that was actually put in there for people like me to uncover 50, 60 years later? (laughs) (laughs) It makes complete sense, though. It's almost um, to a fault for the story. Right. So it, it makes a lot of sense. You know, it makes sense that, uh, yeah, we're going to cut up the science officer's brain. So the one person that could figure this out right away, uh, isn't going to be able to, isn't going to be able to. And so instead yeah, we've got Taylor who, like you said, pretty much lives by his fists and his heart. And we've all learned that that doesn't really get you very far, very long in, in today's society. <laughs> He's like, well, at least I got a woman with me in the cage, you know? <laughs> yeah, okay. And let, let's talk about that really fast. No, but... <laughs> he, he, he picks the most gorgeous woman of the tribe. And I th- think they do that on purpose, obviously, because there were no other beauty pageant supermodel women in the tribe of humans. So, of course, he's going to pick that one. Actually, it's, it's, it's uh, Zira that picks, him, picks her for him. She's like, oh, look at this good-looking bright eyes. He's like, we picked the best one in the bunch for you. Put him in the cage with her. And so that's kind of Zira's fault. So, you know. That's true. That's true. He can either thank or blame Zira for that. Which is kind of odd because at the end she says, but you're so damn ugly. So what would she know about who looks good, right? And I think it's funny, man, because, like, we we talked about that interracial kiss in the Omega Man. Mm -hmm. And at the end of this film, which is a few years earlier, is this the first interspecies kiss where Charlton Heston <laughs> kisses an erotica? <laughs> <laughs> she kind of likes it, and Cornelius gets kind of pissed. He like does that little like getting cucked by Charlton Heston. You know, like one thing that sticks with me too is like you know, kind of side note like. Zap Brannigan from Futurama is totally based off of Charlton Heston. Oh, of course he is. <laughs> <laughs> that scene, you know what also gets me is how real it looks when Zayas is getting strung up to that uh to that tree. Yeah, he he like, hoists looks them like tight. Very Yeah, it looks very hurtful. Yeah, earlier in the movie too, when they have uh Charlton Heston like hogtied to that pole, like that doesn't look like a like a setup that looks like they yeah. legit hog tied him to that pole. And how many takes of that did they do? <laughs> Oof, man, his arms look so uncomfortable know, in that scene too. Dedication, man. I was, yeah, man. Um, yeah. Like what, one thing that I will say too, that, that throughout the film that sticks with me is, and we really, I don't think we talk about it too much, but the guns that they use, mm-hmm. like the design of them. Yeah. Kind of trips me out. They're kind of like, they're like primitive rifles. Like, yes. Like the metallurgy is like a rifle, but like the carving 
of the wood and the stock, like you said, it's yep, a little yep. it's a little bit kind of rudimentary, a little bit primitive. And maybe again, that's like the brilliance of the set designer and the prop master of like, okay, apes have big fingers, so they can't do a lot of intricate patterns and designs. So this is what an ape made rifle stock would look like. I never thought of that. That's actually brilliant. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy to me when I see it because I was like, I, I almost think like part of like, yeah, re relating to everything else on the set and the design, but also like they're going into the na na the natural side of it where it's almost like, you know, what do apes do? Which is like they swing on branches, right? And these these rifles almost look like fashioned branches in a way. Like they look really nice, you know, like as far as the wood cur like curvature of it, but also right. like, you know, like you said, they're kind of big and clunky because they don't have, you know, little fingers like us. So, And this is another thing that, as you're mentioning that, when we talk about the ape city and the ape society, as far as we know, there are no creatures on the planet other than apes and humans. Like they're pretty much living a vegetarian diet. They're growing corn and fruits and bananas or whatever in these, in these fields that the humans keep trying to steal from. But these apes all predominantly wear like leather, like leather tunics over cloth pants and shirts. I've always wondered where the hell is this leather coming from? Is it ape leather? Is it human leather? Like, I've always wondered that, man. It has to be human, man. I, I, if I had to guess. I mean, they do have horses, so it might be horse leather. They do. Yeah, it could but... be. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I've always wondered that. It's like, oh, like, do they have enough like agricultural resources to make that much leather for everybody? <laughs> <laughs> this is where we need like the comedy sideshow uh, Planet of the Apes set in the 1968 universe. Right. Where it's just a couple of guys who work at the leather shop. You know? <laughs> and it's just like <laughs> we can see like what the hell, <laughs> where did they come up with the leather? How they did it? It's and, like a uh, sitcom. It's just like well, everything yes, in the Planet exactly. of the Apes is going on. You got the two guys working in the leather factory. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> ah, just another day at the office. <laughs> Doctor Zayas put in another order for a new vest. <laughs> That's five this week. Ah. Oh God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So now we kind of come to the conclusion of the film. And like I said, if you don't know the ending of this movie, who are you? <laughs> Charlton Heston and Nova are riding down this long sand swept beach. And he comes to like this weird fixture in the distance. You see his face totally drop. He gets off the horse and falls to his knees and says, oh, my God, they did it. They actually did it. We finally really did it. You maniacs! You blew it up! Oh, damn you! God damn you all to hell! Yeah. We pull back to reveal the Statue of Liberty crumbled into the beach. He's been on the planet Earth the entire time. One of the coolest original twist endings that I think people in theaters saw back in the day. I'd say like Psycho would probably one of the coolest twist endings that people weren't expecting. And definitely this one too. Probably before people even knew what spoilers was because in the novel, it doesn't have that ending. The, the ending mm. in the novel is actually, in my opinion, kind of cooler, but a little bit more sophisticated, I must say. But I can only imagine what it would be like in the theater in 1968 to see that ending with an audience and just be like, oh, and then just like silence. Yeah. It's just like my mouth would drop and, uh, I would probably have my mouth open for about a good minute. Like, Oh no, <laughs> what? Uh, and then, yeah, he's <laughs> him pounding on that sand, man. Uh, damn you. Like super memorable. <laughs> I feel like it's been done. At, like it's, it's such a moment in pop culture now that it's like Simpsons, unforgettable family guy, uh, sitcoms, uh, multiple movies. Yeah. Yeah. Spaceballs. <laughs> yeah, man. Spaceballs. It's like, Oh my God. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I mean, uh, amazing movie, classic movie. Now, when we talk about the sequel, so this film was an unexpected hit. It just became a hit really fast. So they instantly started putting sequels into production. Now, one of the things 
that can be said about the sequels is that as each sequel gets made, the makeup effects and budget are seriously declined. Because in this film, every single ape and gorilla and orangutan has the very same intricate makeup pieces. And then when you start getting into the sequels, the sequel being Beneath the Planet of the Apes, only the lead characters have the good makeup. And then everyone else Mm. just has a mask. And it's an obvious mask. And again, you kind of give it a pass because the stories are so good. And each Mm -hmm. film, the makeups and the masks get worse. Kind of like how each Jaws movie gets worse. But these movies are good. It's just the budget keeps getting cut for each one. Yeah, that's something my wife always points out every time I'm watching it. <laughs> she's like, oh, man. She's like, you can tell who has the good stuff and who doesn't. Right, for sure. <laughs> like, Mostly the gorillas yeah, have the bad stuff. <laughs> yes. There's a couple of chimpanzees you might see. Um, you know. Oh, in Conquest, uh, it's really bad. Like in Conquest, yeah. some of, the, some of the, the wide shots where you see like the people on the, like, the far left and right of the screen, yeah, their masks are terrible. But again, like, you, if you're invested – you let it slide, you let it pass, you know? Yep. Yeah, totally. And it makes sense too. You, even like I've said before, when we, we've talked about, you know, practical effects, how even the fake stuff looks more real, even, even in that context, you know, the apes that aren't the focus of the story, even though they might not have the best makeup, it makes sense in the story. Almost like if you're looking at a panel that's yeah. been drawn, like in a comic book or, you know, a picture, you have your things that are in focus and your things that are in the background and it makes sense in that context. So it totally keeps you into the story, even though you might notice that um, you might nitpick it, but I feel like it totally works. So you've got beneath the planet of the apes, then escape from the planet of the apes, conquest of the planet of the apes and battle for the planet of the apes. Those are the five original sequels in the series. Where does that land on your list? How do you rank them? Because I feel like everyone ranks them a little bit differently. I know I have a very specific way. Have you ever kind of put that into into consideration? Um, only recently when um you you had mentioned it, and I, like I normally always watch it in order, but as far as I've I've always like kind of contemplated doing a marathon reverse order. Yeah. I mean, just see how I would enjoy it. Um, but I think so. Yeah. I feel like battle battle for the planet of the apes is probably my least favorite. Yeah. So it'd probably be like my number five. And then, um, I would probably put, uh, beneath from the planet of the apes is my number four. And, if I could do a one A and one B, it'd be Escape and, and Planet of the Apes. But yeah, I'd have to put uh, uh, I have to put Conquest uh, from the Planet of the Apes as my number two, and uh, Planet of the Apes as my number one. Yeah, I'd be in the exact same order, man. That's how it'd go for me. It'd go Planet, then Conquest, then Escape, Beneath, and then Battle last. And I enjoy them all, but that's just how I kind of like them the best. I always am excited mm-hmm. when I get to Conquest because I think that has the best performance by Roddy McDowell, now playing Caesar, the son of Cornelius and Zira. I think it has the best direction by Jay Lee Thompson, who went on to do uh, some of the Death Wish movies and a lot of Charles Bronson movies in the canon series. I just like the way he does it. It's a little bit more violent. It's a little bit more energetic. And once it takes off, it doesn't stop. That's one of the reasons why I like it, where the other ones can kind of like go up and down with their energy and take a little bit long in the exposition. Conquest, once it gets rolling, it's like 45 minutes of anarchy. And it's well-directed, beautiful anarchy. And that's why I like it. Yeah. Uh, I love uh, R- Ricardo Montalban in there. Man. Oh, yeah. He's playing Armando. And Armando. Uh... Let's go back to the circus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I yeah, always, get, I always cry. Like, oh. Armando. I feel so bad. Like, I feel like so bad when Armando gets it, but I also feel like there's this apprehension watching that film that no matter what, no matter how many times you see it, you're going to be like, come on, man, just get back on the, the, helipod- <laughs> the helicopter and get the hell get out the of hell there. Out of there. <laughs> you just feel like you want to change it, but you can't. And I mean, that's, that's what makes it a great film. Cause you know, the tragedy uh, that's going to befall. um, just not our society, but the things that our character is going to go through and making him realize, you know, the truth. 
Yeah, 100%. We can kind of like cover the legacy of the Planet of the Apes uh, as we kind of wrap this up. Now, Escape from the Planet of the Apes is an interesting one because it takes that ape story and it puts like in a fish out of water kind of scenario where Zira, Cornelius, and an ape named Milo, who we are never introduced to in the other films, who's apparently a brilliant scientist and repairs the spaceship that uh, Charlton Heston landed in, they take off and somehow end up back in time and land in 1973 San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And then they are like treated like celebrities and they tell their story. And as they're telling their story, they realize that the government is now on, is now on notice that their existence can lead to the extinction of the human race. So mm-hmm. without giving the plot of the novel away, that's pretty much the plot of the original novel. So mm. Escape from the Planet of the Apes is essentially the original Planet of the Apes novel, where at first, the character, I believe his name is Ulysses, he's treated mm. like a celebrity. Like, oh, we have a talking human in this large city society of apes. And he's you know taken to museums and put on display and is treated like almost like an aristocrat until he mates and has a kid. And then the scientific community is like, oh, well, this is how our society falls apart. So part three, Escape from the Planet of the Apes, is essentially the same story of the original novel. Wow. That makes that actually makes sense. It's just they flipped. put them in the city, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's flipped. Yeah. So oh, now man. let's talk about, I mean, I was never a huge fan of the animated series from the 70s. I did watch the Planet of the Apes TV show when it was like on after Saturday morning cartoons or something. I remember it, yeah. But then in 2001, Tim Burton and Mark Wahlberg made one of the biggest travesties of all time. <laughs> the, the Planet of the Ape remake, where like it had respectable people. You have Tim Burton directing, you had Mark Wahlberg starring, you had Tim Roth as a badass villain in that movie. Fade, but the, yeah. the movie just wasn't good, man. And it just kind of sullied the ape legacy. Uh... Yeah, I'll give I'll give you a quick microcosm of that film. Yeah, uh, if humans can talk, then why are we <laughs> why right. are we like slaves to apes? That was the biggest like conundrum to me, and that's why that story doesn't make sense. It doesn't uh, make any sense. It's super, <laughs> yeah, it's like we can talk, we're smart, so why are we slaves again? I mean, it had uh, Rick Baker makeup. It had all the things going. Makeup for was it. awesome. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. couldn't do it. And then we had the Ape Trilogy from the 2000s with Andy Serkis, who was Gollum. And those were actually not bad. I thought they were enjoyable. I think they did their best to try and stay to the energy and vibe of the original, having a little bit of that retro energy, even in their artwork on the posters. They were enjoyable, you know? But they don't Mm -hmm. hold a candle to the originals, in my opinion. No. Yeah, they're they're even... If you were to look at them separately I, I wouldn't even the only way to kind of justify them because they are they are good movies but i don't even look at them as remakes they're almost like a a prequel in a sense because you don't get none of the high society or beliefs or things of that nature you get the kind of like the building of it in the new versions but n- nothing that you see like in the original films well man i had a blast talking about all things planet of the apes with you it's great to have conversations like this with another enthusiast of cult films like this and even the lesser known and even lesser appreciated sequels that I hold dear to my heart. So thank you. No, definitely, man. Um, it, this was awesome. And this was great to be able to shoot it and talk about something that's really, you know, should be seen by everyone. <laughs> should be seen by everybody. So what you got coming up on uh, no on 15? Um, ton of stuff, man. Like this week, actually, our episode comes out nice. of the Summer of series. So we have uh, Antonio on our on our episode, and we're talking uh, the Summer of '89, and then um, that series will end the week after uh, with another podcast that's host uh, guesting on, uh, which is I think your your next favorite movie podcast. Oh, nice! And then uh, the month after that, we're doing all music stuff, man. So it's all music, um, pretty much themed the whole month. I have an interview with. Uh, a singer from a freestyle group that was pretty popular back in the 90s uh, interview with him coming out and then uh, just movies musical movies so you know stuff like uh, Blues Brothers we're gonna be talking about uh, like yeah just just stuff like that so it should be fun man 
Nice. On the Cultworthy podcast, I've got some like summertime series coming up, like uh, beach movie double features. I'm doing a deep dive into the most important summer movie ever made, in my opinion. That's Do the Right Thing with Nikki mm-hmm. E of the Here's Looking at You film podcast. So just a lot of good stuff for the summertime and then probably diving into cult musicals after that. So a lot of fun stuff nice. coming up, man. Yeah, man. That's awesome. I uh, can't wait to hear it. Like, it's always on my list, man, to hear your show. So well, I appreciate that. Well, cool. So you can find Caesar and the No One Fifteen All Casts wherever podcasts can be found. Do you have a website, man? Uh, it's still under construction. Um, it's still a pod page. So, but you got Linktree, right? Yeah, I got yeah, Linktree so and all that stuff. So, I'll have the Linktree for No One Fifteen on the episode notes of this episode. And on my website, thecultworthy.com, where you can find all my latest reviews, blogs, and connections to Cultworthy Podcasts in my Cultworthy Partners page. And I've also got merch, so you can start shopping for cool Cultworthy Podcast and Cultworthy Classic gear. Caesar, thanks so much for joining me, man, and we'll do this again soon. I know it. Yeah, for sure, man. Awesome. Have a good night, everybody. 